Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne, anyone who stops at a traditional Cologne pub and you really should do that and is hungry for some chicken should be careful not to order a halve Hahn. Although this halve Hahn is called Hava Rooster in the Rhenish dialect, you will be surprised when the dish is presented to you. You will receive a rye roll with a thick piece of cheese, mostly gouda, with mustard, sliced pickles, butter and onions. There are many legends about how the Halve Hahn got its name. One says that a jubilarian who celebrated his birthday wanted to make a prank on his friends, pretending that he invites them all to eat chicken at his party. In the past, an expensive dish because meat in general was expensive. After all, a rye roll like this really looks like a roasted rooster at first glance. Another legend says that at a wedding party the caterer didn't have enough chicken available and compensated the wedding party with rye rolls with cheese. Well, decide for yourself which story you want to believe. Okay, let's hit the intro. In the last episode we talked about the small last bloom of Roman Cologne in the 4th century. Emperor Constantine the Great had built a bridge over the Rhine and a military camp at its end to secure Cologne. This stone military camp which already looked rather like a medieval castle marked no less than the birth of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine around the year 310. Even if the Romans themselves regard this side of the Rhine as a foreign country. A way of thinking that even today many Cologne residents share, which I find very mean. Let's follow on directly from the last episode. Cologne in the first half of the 4th century. The Roman Empire is in a defensive mode at almost all its borders. Cologne is no exception. The Germanic Franks are now the permanent neighbors of the people of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine. Again and again, Individual groups set out across the Rhine and plunder Roman territory around Cologne. But it would be far too easy to portray the Franks as mere enemies of the people of Cologne. The often chronological narrative of this podcast often means that we can hardly adequately consider structural developments over a longer period of time. The Franks had emerged as a Germanic tribal confederation in the course of the 3rd century. They did not yet see themselves as a unified people. Not that they have a centrally expressed political will. The proof of this are the, now what should we call them, let's just say the legal Franks on Roman soil. If you had virtually no job prospects in Free Germania, many young Franks crossed the Rhine and let themselves be recruited by the Romans. After completing their Roman military service, these Franconian soldiers with Roman citizenships could then settle down in Cologne or the surrounding areas in an excellent and absolutely legal manner. The parallels to the Ubians who came to the Roman way of life in a similar way 300 years ago cannot be denied. Cologne had always been strongly barbaric, to put it like this. Besides the Romanized Gallo-Roman elite, there were still many Germanic inhabitants who lived in both worlds, in both the Roman and the Germanic or Franconian world. 
This life also told by an inscription of a man named Victorinos, which was found near Budapest in what is now Hungary. Still very far away, but with the following inscription you uh, will get what I mean. On the inscription it is written in Latin Francus ego cives, Romanus miles in armis. Well, if you don't know Latin, let me translate that for you. Roughly translated this means I am a Frank, a Roman citizen and a soldier in the army. This sounds strange, but was completely in the logic of the time. You could be all of those in one person. Let's take a look to daily life in Cologne, if we can. Unfortunately, I cannot offer a guided tour of the city like some episodes before, because it is difficult to say how daily life in Cologne in the first half of the 4th century was like due to the lack of written sources. We can assume that there was still a city council that has existed since the elevation of Cologne to the status of a colony in the year 50. How else can we explain the letter from Emperor Constantine from two episodes earlier who wrote to the members of the city council in the year 321 that Jewish fellow citizens could from now on be admitted to their midst? It can therefore certainly be assumed that the previous political structure of the city of Cologne in Roman times has survived over the centuries. Here too gravestones found by archaeologists with corresponding inscriptions and official titles of the deceased served as evidence of this. Up until the year 341 peace had returned to the Rhine. Campaigns by Constantine and his armies into Frankish territory in the years 319 and 328-329 ensured this. Under the supreme command of Constantine's sons, first Crispus and then his son of the same name, Constantine II, this was achieved. This provided the already mentioned last time of prosperity for Roman Cologne. The economy did not really recover at the level it had reached between the years 100 to 250, but at least partially. This was probably also due to Frankish settlers who moved into Roman territory from the right bank of the Rhine. Sadly, we can be sure that this great Roman water line, which we had dedicated a whole episode about, which brought fresh water from the Eiffel to a city over a length of almost 100 kilometers or 60 miles, was no longer functioning at that time. As it was a strategically important infrastructure target, it was certainly destroyed in one of the many battles in the region in some time of the last decades. Due to the permanent threat, the complicated and time-consuming repair of the waterline was abandoned, which thus fell apart more and more. Eventually, it was even forgotten for a long time in its function as a waterline. For the water supply, creeks from the immediate vicinity were again used, which were the most important source of fresh water in the town, up until the early modern age. These were mostly creeks from the surrounding area which flowed from the west towards the Rhine from the east. Their names are impossible for English-speaking listeners to understand, so I'm saving this for a later episode. Or maybe, well, if you want to, you can remember those names like Blaubach or Dufisbach, can you? But then, of course, every golden age has an end and in the year 337, Emperor Constantine the Great died. The danger that I am now lecturing on Roman history again hangs over us like a sort of Damocles. But don't worry, unfortunately we have to cut a short story short here. Emperor Constantine the Great had not appointed an heir among his several sons, which is totally stupid. 
By the way, the sons themselves are either called Constantine or something similar to Constans or Constantius. Of course, this does not make it confusing at all for me or for you. Constantine's non-appointing an heir led to civil wars again after his death in 337, which in turn led to troops being withdrawn from the border regions of the Rhine. Again. This naturally included Cologne and the Rhineland, as so often before, as far as the withdrawal of Roman troops was concerned. The people of Cologne will certainly have trembled with fear from the year 337 onwards, and they should be right. Already in 341, and the following year, Emperor Constance, the son of Constantine the Great, had to return to Gaul on the Rhine to repel a Frankish invasion. In 345, he had to stay in the Rhineland again. Then a new civil war broke out in 350 and again destabilized the situation on the Rhine. Emperor Constance, who stayed in the Rhineland and Gaul, did not see rebellion against his rule coming that year. Almost in the middle of a hunt, he learned of the rebellion of a usurper. He was assassinated shortly afterwards. This forced the brother of the murdered emperor, Constantius II, to break off his campaign in the east of the empire against the Persians to fight in the Rhineland to restore the rule of his dynasty. And I hope I pronounce him in English correctly, and if not, I don't care, you know who I mean if you type it in to your search engine on the internet. So I keep calling him Constantius II. He succeeded in doing so at the Battle of Mercer in present-day Croatia. He defeated the usurper who had ordered his brother to be killed. This battle was one of the bloodiest battles of the entire ancient world. A total of almost 60,000 soldiers died in that battle. Constantius II had won, but at what price? Not even a world empire could simply put up with such a loss of life so quickly. Conversely, of course, this meant that the Roman Rhine border was again inadequately secured. And Cologne in particular was to experience this very quickly. At the same time, a group of Germanic Alemanni south of Cologne took advantage of the situation and raided large parts of the Roman territory on the left bank of the Rhine in the province of Upper Germania. The Franks on the right bank of the Rhine now saw their chance as well and plundered almost everything around Cologne. Most of the as yet unfortified estates in the region will have been destroyed in the process now for sure. But not only that, the two army camps in Bonn and Neuss, located north and south of Cologne respectively, were also destroyed. The Roman troops stationed there had already been so thinned out beforehand that they had nothing to oppose the Frankish enemy. The fall of the two military camps responsible for Cologne's protection was exactly what worried the people of Cologne. Now Germanic units were even able to attack fortified places like a Roman military camp? For many centuries before, this had actually been unlikely. What had changed? Well, many Germanic Franks served in the Roman army for decades now already and had thus also been taught the military technology of the Romans. It should therefore come as no surprise that this knowledge about siege weapons, for example, then spread to the Franconian cultural area on the other side of the Rhine. However, Cologne was spared for this time being. Cologne's stonewall was just too mighty, still, than the earth, walls and wooden palisades of a Roman military camp. It is worth noting that at this time in the middle of the 4th century the Alemanni and Franks had no trouble at all penetrating the Roman imperial territory. 
Many Germanic federations will have taken advantage of the situation to settle permanently in the fertile regions of Gaul and the Rhineland. In the year 350, Cologne lay like a Roman island in the middle of a devastated surrounding area which had been devastated by civil wars and Germanic invasions. But it was not only the high walls that had protected Cologne during this period. For the Franks knew who exactly resided in this city with its high walls. It was Silvanus, the Roman military commander responsible for Roman Gaul. As already mentioned, in military terms, a military commander for the Greater Gaul region ensured security on the Rhine. All soldiers in what is now France, Western Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Luxembourg and parts of the Netherlands were under his command. At the time, this someone was a Romanized Frank named Silvanus. The interesting thing here is how he lived in both worlds. He was still a Frank, but he had for example already adopted Christianity and was trained in Roman education. He would therefore have spoken and read Latin fluently as well as Franconian. The fact that he was a Christian is quite remarkable because the Franks themselves were still faithful to their pagan Germanic beliefs at that time in the middle of the 4th century. Silvanus had probably switched sides to Constantius II shortly before this infamous battle in Mursa. In fact, Silvanus had joined the usurper against Constantius II a year earlier, so he probably had changed sides in time, I guess. Just a short note that I just uh, noticed. This Silvanus is in no way related to the Silvanus we covered a few episodes earlier in this podcast. There are almost 100 years between them. It was probably just a common name and that both were called that is just coincidence. After all, there were two American presidents named Roosevelt. Oh, uh, wait. I do believe they were related in some kind of way. Or the Bushs? Oh, well, never mind. Silvanus' family had long been descended from a tribe of the very Franks who had entered Roman military service. Unlike the other Franks on the right bank of the Rhine, who preferred to attack Roman territory in the hope of gaining wealth and money. Silvanus' father himself had already served as a general for Emperor Constantine the Great, the builder of the Rhine Bridge and Fort Deutz in Cologne, and the first Christian Roman Emperor and daddy to Constantius II. And here, now an irony without equal happens. According to the few historical sources we have, Silvanus was completely loyal to his emperor, Constantius II. He had proven himself a capable general on the Rhine. After all, he did not have an easy job. When Silvanus started his job in 353, he found the Rhine border that was completely devastated. Roads were no longer functional. Castles and fortresses were almost all destroyed, and not to forget, Silvanus had hardly had enough soldiers to secure the whole region again. Most of them had all died in the Battle of Mursa two years ago. Several parts of the Rhineland and Gaul were controlled by Frankish or Alemanni invaders. Only Cologne could serve him as a military base of operations during this time. The important imperial palace of Trier, on the other hand, was too far away from the frontier. The rapid rise of Silvanus as a young army commander in such a short time was, however, not welcomed by everyone at the Roman imperial court, which was then located in Milan and not in Rome itself anymore. Especially a military man named Apodemius. A name you don't have to remember, but he is about to appear in a source that I will quote. That is the only reason why I have named him here. But because of this, 
many at the imperial court spread the rumor that Silvanus want to seize sole rule of the empire. I mean, such accusations should not surprise anyone, it had happened so often in the meantime. But in this case, it was simply not true. The conspirators were really spreading fake news. They forged letters, which however contained the correct signature of Silvanus. They had used letters from Silvanus that he had sent to them. But the text on the document had been edited, so that only the signature was the only thing original left. Then a new text had been inserted over this signature, which contained the alleged treacherous context of Silvanus. Constantius II naturally wanted to get to the bottom of these accusations. As Emperor of the Roman Empire, he was well aware that traitors could be lurking around every corner. He ordered Silvanus to leave his post in the Rhineland and come to Milan to face the accusations. And Emperor Constantius II, how could you blame him, because his brother had just fallen victim to a rebellion shortly that costed his life, was extremely receptive to the smell of enemies everywhere. And now comes this bitter irony of history. Silvanus was aware that if he were to arrive in Milan, it would already be too late for him anyway. He would surely be executed directly, and how do you protect yourself against an emperor who had already pronounced a sentence? Precisely. You did exactly what you were accused of doing. And so it happened that Silvanus was proclaimed as the new Roman emperor in 355 to the cheers of his soldiers in Cologne. Another new civil war was now possible again. What happened now actually brings a tear to my eye from the point of view of a historian. For in the historian Amianus Marcellinus, we have already quoted him uh, before, uh, I think it was the Crisis of the 3rd Century episode. We have not only a contemporary of that time, but he was also actively involved in the events that followed. Live, at first hand, he was here in Cologne. But unfortunately, he completely spares us with many important details. But first of all, one after the other. What does Amianus Marcellinus, the historian, actually tell us? Marcellinus belonged as a part of the retinue to another army commander, who was actually responsible for securing the border to Persia, but at that time also stayed with Emperor Constantius II at the court in Milan, because those two guys had troubles too, but they cleared them up before that uh, affair. The latter now sent his army commander to Cologne. No less than a kind of a covert command operation was planned in Milan. Not a large army was to destroy Silvanus in long grueling battles. For this purpose a small group of elite soldiers and officers was assembled who were to travel to Cologne disguised as a group of diplomats. With few but effective means Silvanus was to be eliminated and the rule of Rome in the Rhineland was to be restored. In the process the army commander took the historian Amianus Marcellinus with him. Let us quote him directly from his historical work, Book 15, Chapter 5, Verse 15. I honestly don't know whether the latter number is seen as a verse. Please forgive me if this is the wrong word for it. But now finally to his explanations. Quote, While these affairs were progressing, Silvanus was living in Cologne and, having learned through constant information sent to him by his friends, what Apodemius was doing in the hope of bringing about his ruin, and knowing also how impressive the spirit of the weak emperor was, he began to fear that in his absence and without being convicted of any crime, 
he might still be treated as a criminal. And so, as he found himself in an extremely difficult situation, he began to think of entrusting himself to the good faith of the barbarians. End quote. By the good faith of the barbarians, he meant of course the Franks on the right side of the Rhine that lived next to Cologne. According to Marcellinus, Silvanus probably first wanted to flee to the Franks in free Germania to escape the emperor's wrath. But a confidant probably advised him not to do so. So Marcellinus reports this further. Quote, However, since he was prevented from doing so by Laniogaisus, and since Laniogaisus assured him that the Franks, of whom he himself was a compatriot, would kill him or betray him for a bribe, he saw no security anywhere in the present plight, and was therefore driven to extreme advice. And little by little, after he had secretly consulted with the leaders of the main legions and aroused them by the amount of the promised rewards, he took the opportunity to tear the purple silk from the insignia of the dragons and banners for use, thus assuming the title of emperor." End quote. The news of the rebellion of the Rhine must have been brought to Milan very quickly. How do we know this? Well, without wanting to spoil you, but Silvanus would not rule for too long. Not even a year, not even a month, just 28 days. Mounted messengers must have brought the news from Cologne to Milan to Emperor Constantius II in no time at all, and the imperial court seems to have reacted just as quickly. So, Marcellinus continues in his book, quote, Constantius seemed struck by a bolt of fate in this amazing and unexpected event, and after he had immediately summoned a council for the second guard, all the nobles rushed to the palace. None had the brains or the tongue to recommend what was best to do, but in the hushed tones they mentioned the name of Usitzinus as a man outstanding for his skill in matters of war and who had undeservedly been subjected to most harmful treatment. The imperial chief chamberlain sent for him immediately, which is the most honorable form of summons, and as soon as he entered the council chamber, the magenta was offered to him in greeting much more graciously than any previous time. End quote. This man, Ositzinus, and I'm sorry if I pronounce his name in a German kind of way, is this military commander that Marcellinus accompanied to Cologne to nip Sylvanus's usurpation in the butt. In order not to confuse you with too many names, I have left Ositzinus without his name so far. And it is not really important for us. In order to get this situation under control, Marcellinus and his army commander were not sent to Cologne with a large army as already mentioned. That would have taken far too long. The assassination squad disguised as a diplomatic delegation was expected to be successful more quickly. And time was of the essence. Not that Sylvanus' sphere of power in Gaul would spread even further, as it had been with the Gallic Empire, for example. So, it is reported by Marcellinus, quote, after this affair had been arranged, the officer who had brought the news to Milan was ordered to leave with a few tribunes and ten elite soldiers and the house guard as escort, who were made available to him at his own request to help him fulfill his public duty. And of these, I, myself, was one, together with my colleague Verianus and all the others were either friends or relatives of mine. End quote. There you have it. Marcellinus was part of the murder squad. 
And yet he keeps so many things from us that subsequently happened in that fateful year of 355 for Cologne. The plan of this travel group was actually relatively simple and ingenious. With this small group you could travel quickly to Cologne. After all, coming from Italy they had to cross the Alps to the north, which was a greater obstacle for a whole army than for a small travel group. The plan was therefore to travel to Cologne as quickly as possible in the hope that they would not know that the Emperor in Milan already knew of the usurpation of Silvanus. So they could go to the city of Cologne as an ordinary diplomatic delegation and then, at a favorable moment, well, you know, kill Silvanus. Perhaps after a cozy dinner together with too much wine? But unfortunately, this kind of plan did not work out because the news that the Emperor in Milan was already in the picture traveled faster than the group to which Marcellinus belonged. The group had to reschedule. They now pretended themselves to have turned away from Rome and Emperor Constantius II and would now offer themselves to Silvanus as submissive advisors and comrades. The feint worked. To their own surprise. Silvanus led them into the city. The plan could now be put into action after all. At the next dawn, probably on a day in September of 355, the murder squad entered the Cologne Praetorium with drawn swords. The guards had been bribed with money beforehand, so that as little blood as possible would flow. They searched all the rooms in the entire Praetorium. But Silvanus was nowhere to be found. He was on his way to church service at that very moment. He was, as already mentioned, a Frankish man, but Romanization had progressed so far with him that he had adopted the Christian faith. So this Romanized Frank was dutifully on his way to morning mass. Silvanus nevertheless noticed the commotion in the praetorium while still on the streets of Cologne and tried to take refuge in the Christian meeting room. But let us let Marcellinus himself speak one last time. Quote, so, after having secured our success by addressing a few agents among the simple soldiers, men whose completely lack of clarity made them suitable for the accomplishment of such a task, and who were now aroused by the expectation of a reward, at sunrise, as soon as the east began to redden, a crowd of armed men suddenly broke out, acting with more than ordinary boldness, as is customary at critical moments. They beat the guards and entered the palace and after dragging Silvanus from a small chapel to which he had fled in fear on his way to a convent dedicated to the ceremonies of the Christian worship, they slain him to death with repeated sword strokes. End quote. So you see, the report of Marcellinus is eventful but leaves out so much that we really want to know. In his standard work on Cologne and Roman times, the historian Werner Eck has raised legitimate question about these events. Firstly, how amateurish Silvanus had been. He simply led an armed delegation from the enemy Roman Imperial court into Cologne and let them act freely? For a long time, research has been focusing on the thesis that Silvanus never really revolted against Rome, that he had no idea that killers were coming for him. The assassination squad to which Marcellinus belonged had first killed Silvanus and then subsequently fabricated an alleged attempt to usurp the Roman imperial title as justification for this murder. But even this proved to be untenable. Current research is currently assuming this again that Silvanus had planned a coup attempt. 
but he was not really smart in doing so, I guess. One thing is remarkable, or two things are remarkable here. First, although he was a Frankish man, this barbarian had probably gained enough respect among the Roman upper class, at least in Cologne and the region, to be accepted by them as the new Roman emperor. Second, it is also interesting to know that it is only said in a subordinate clause, but Marcellinus's report on Sylvanus's flight to a Christian house of worship is the oldest written testimony and source we have, which explicitly proves the existence of a Christian church in the city of Cologne. But never mind now, Sylvanus was dead and the murder squad left the city. But let us look again at the strategic level of the Cologne lowland now. Now, not only were all forts and military camps in the Rhineland destroyed, as before, the troops almost no longer existed due to the recent civil wars, no, now also the extremely capable military command-in-chief of the Romans in the region, Silvanus, was dead. Now, the Franks knew that this time was ripe. After all, it was practically an invitation on a silver platter for them. A storm of Franks began on Roman territory in Roman Germania and Gaul. Several dozen settlements and towns in Gaul to which Cologne also belonged to in regional terms were destroyed. As a result, almost the entire infrastructure in Gaul collapsed. The centuries-old rule of Roman Gaul, which had gone back to Gaius Julius Caesar himself 400 years earlier, gradually disintegrated. This can also be seen archaeologically. The exchange of Roman coins between these regions collapsed rapidly during this period. The Roman upper class of the city of Cologne in particular will probably have thought that it was now finally time to seek out safe places in the Roman Empire. Perhaps it would be better in Southern Gaul or even in Italy, but where was it safe now? Some, especially the Roman upper class, left. But one thing is certain, many stayed. After all, many of Cologne's citizens didn't want or simply could not afford to leave their economic existence behind. Once again, enemy Frankish warriors roamed the foreland of Cologne. And I think the irony is that they could have been stopped if the Romans had kept the Frankish general alive that served them as a military commander in the region. I think that, that, that is irony for me. The citizens of Cologne were used to that by now, of Frankish raiding groups pillaging their surroundings. But then this, but then this, when the citizens of Cologne looked out from their city wall into the distance into the surrounding countryside, they were horrified to discover that the Franks were not moving on as usual. Usually, they continued to raid other easy targets, such as country states or small settlements, but this time, the Franks stayed. What a fright. Then the not-too-large Frankish army began to build a fortified ring around the city. Even on the Rhine, shipping traffic was no longer possible. Cologne was besieged. The city could not hope for the help of Rome. From where now? The two Roman military camps, Bonn in the south, Neuss in the north, had already been destroyed several years ago and had not been put back into operation. And then the unimaginable thing happened. Not even two months had passed since the murder of Silvanus. The Franks, although not in great numbers, rushed towards the mighty stone city wall of Cologne that had protected the city for now 300 years. 
Instead of crashing like waves on the shore, however, the Franks successfully overcame the wall. In November, or in December 355 at the latest, Cologne was conquered by the Franks. It was the first time that an enemy and non-Roman army had conquered the city militarily. Pooh. Let's leave here with this little shock for this time. Next time, we will analyze why the heavily fortified city of Cologne could fall into the hands of a small group of Germanic Franks. And will they be able to hold the city against the world power Rome? And then there is another question that I actually wanted to answer in this episode. Why do the Franks do this? Why do these bloodthirsty Germanic tribes attack the poor, poor Roman Empire? Well, we'll clarify that first of all in the next episode. For real this time, promise. Thanks for listening and as always, auf Wiedersehen. And if you like this podcast, I guess you do, because if not, you wouldn't have listened to the end of this. Well, follow me on social media like Facebook or Instagram and check out my homepage to get background information or learn how to support this podcast. Thank you.